0: Um, if you don't know me, I'm Toby. I weirdly find kind of one fact, two fact introductions quite boring, so... Do you want to know me? I really need a wee, so this might not be nine minutes. Uh, and I discovered, oh, that's nice. And I discovered that spreadable butter exists about two months ago. Life changing. So I was trying to work out how I could start this talk off. When I went and chatted with Rich a few days ago, he said, look, it's coming up a little bit short. Maybe you could pop something in the beginning to start it off. So I was thinking, um, i got a story I could tell and couldn't come up with one. And then I thought that I'd go with a joke. Um, <laughs> and then I went online. There's literally a website called like preachingjokes.com. <laughs> But the problem is you go through it and half of them are either like really dry and really boring or the other ones are genuinely like redacted. You know that blurry thing where you have to click reveal? Like that should never be a thing on a Preaching dick's website. There was this one about um, a Welsh man and a sheep. Now I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm getting a shake of the head. <laughs> um, Toby, if you could pop the slide up. We'll get on with the Bible, quickly. <laughs> so the passage... <laughs> The passage I've been given is uh, ask, seek, knock. It's the one that obviously follows the one that Karen has just given us. And I'd love to just start off by reading it out. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But anyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I think when we read this passage, we read that first bit, and it says, "Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open to you." And it doesn't quite seem to match up with our lives. I know for me, and I'm sure everyone else in here. I don't always get what I want when I pray. Not every time that I knock on a door does it get opened. and I find that quite difficult sometimes. And if any of you always get your prayers answered, I'd love to chat with you, but I don't think that's going to be the case. And I think that one of the problems can often be that we don't match our will up with God's will. Sometimes we're praying for something that's just not in God's will. James 4.13 speaks about that. But I think there's also a different problem. I think that When we read this passage, we don't quite understand what it means. I think one of the problems with our English language is that we read things and don't quite get the correct meaning. So when we read this, we really emphasise words like find, opened, and receives. But that's not how it's meant to be interpreted, I think. A lot of what I'm going to say comes from a theologian with an absolute mouthful of a name. It's David Instone Brewer. He's a research fellow at Cambridge University. And what he writes is that the problem is that the word will isn't there. The word will for us in our modern interpretation of the English language, it implies a promise. But in older translations of the Bible, the word uses shall. So rather than the door will be open to you, it says the door shall be open unto you. So that comes from something called the subjunctive mood. I can see the English, English students give me a little look. The subjunctive mood is something used to describe hypothetical situations rather than actual situations. It's a mood that doesn't imply certainty. So the word shall rather than means def- it's definitely going to happen means but it might happen. So the way we should really interpret this passage, as David Instone Brewer says, is that to receive something, ask; to find something, seek; and to get the door to open, knock. I think the impact of most of us, myself included, having interpreted this passage wrong in the past, is more than just like the semantics and ordering of words. I think it's meant we've become a bit sleepy in our prayer lives. I think we've got really good at asking God for things. So many people I know in this room have strong prayer lives. We all ask God for loads of things. We've got pretty good at seeking God in situations, but so often we fail to reach that last step. We understand that if we want God to give us something, we need to ask him. Often we want an answer from God, we seek him, but so very often we don't get to knocking. We don't get to that active stage of our faith. We don't get to the doing part. We just ask, prayer, quick prayer and forget about it and just hope that it might happen. I think this is a problem particularly for the church in the West. I think the church in the West has got really sleepy. We've got really slow and we've got pretty content with a lack of action. I was chatting to someone this morning and they were saying that actually the biggest attack from the devil... It doesn't come from our deconstruction. It doesn't come from us questioning this part of the Bible, or this part of the Bible. It comes from an apathy with our faith. It comes with us going, "Hmm, oh well, okay, just pray about it and forget. The other day I started reading about the church in Iran. According to Open Doors, Christian converts in Iran can be banned from education, they can lose their jobs, and they find it really difficult to get back into employment. And if you're a woman, It's far worse. They're likely to be violently punished or divorced by their husbands, and they could even have their children taken away from them. Being a Christian in Iran is tough. If I was to then ask you, where do you reckon the fastest growing church in the world is? Probably not going to say Iran. That's exactly where it is. And of this fastest growing church, huge amounts of it, most of it, is being led by women. The most oppressed group in the most oppressed group is the one making the biggest moves for God in the world. I carried on reading about the Iranian church and I started reading about this couple. Their names have been redacted for their safety. But there are a couple that managed to emigrate to the USA. And as soon as you hear that, you go, great. Thank you, God. Freedom. No oppression, no persecution. Wrong. They hated it. After they'd been living in the US for a while, the wife turned to her husband and said, take me back to Iran. There's a satanic lullaby over the church here and the Christians are sleepy. What does that mean? I think it means that the devil isn't really fussed by Christians that aren't taking action. The devil isn't fussed if you're going to pray the old prayer and forget about it. That's no threat to him. That's no threat to the devil. The devil wants to oppose Christians that are taking action, not sleepy Christians doing nothing. Every time we read in the Bible about the devil opposing something, the devil being against something, the devil scheming to start a plan, it's a big plan that's going to make big moves for God's kingdom. Whether it's Paul trying to visit Thessalonica, or if it's Jesus telling other people how he's going to be raised after three days. Every time the devil tries to stop something, has a scheme. It's to stop a powerful move being made for God. It's never when something's just okay. Might happen. Might not. Devil some fuss. Now the last thing I want is for anyone to go away and be scared about the devil. Be, I'm scared to make moves for God because of what the devil's going to do. There was nothing to be scared of. Luke 10 tells us that Christians have the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. And Jesus says that of all the power of the enemy, nothing will injure you. In. That is what the satanic lullaby means. It means that we've got complacent and comfortable with praying the odd prayer and then doing nothing about it. And the devil's perfectly happy with that. All of us wanted to change in the spiritual landscape of Exeter, of England, and of the world. But if we want to see change, if we want to see our coursemates come to Jesus, if we want to see revival, we need to get up and start knocking. We need to start telling our coursemates about who Jesus was. We need to start taking action, telling your coursemates about Jesus. It's not going to land you up in prison, not in a run. It might be a bit uncomfortable, but to live out this faith properly, to do it, we need to live outside of our comfort zone sometimes. We need to pray about things. Seek God in them and then get on with it, trusting that God is with us in what we're doing. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't work or that God needs our help for all these things. Not at all. He doesn't. God doesn't need your help, but He wants it. God's got a plan, God's got a mission for this world. And He loves you and He wants you to come along on the ride. He gives you big roles, He gives you big things to do because He wants you to be part of this change, of this journey. We need to have faith that God is with us when we're knocking on doors. Starting to come round to the finish here. I'm still desperate for a wee. But to round up, I'd love to give a little example of a time when I and the team I was working with got it right. I don't get it right all the time, but this is one time when I did. Last year I was working for a Christian festival based down in Cornwall, and the festival runs once a year in the summer, but throughout the rest of the year, there's a lot of youth work that goes on. When they have a sort of a youth drop-in session, they open up the offices, young people can come in, they can make themselves a cup of tea, have some food, play ping pong, snooker, whatever, it was flipping carnage. Like the amount of like first day you had to do, like getting a bandage on a kid's eye because a snooker cue had gone across the room, or a ball, or like, no, those are the good bits, There was all sorts that went on. Um, and over this time we had about five to as much as 40 young people come in, usually about the 20 mark. And over the year I was there, I got to know these young people fairly well. One of these lads came in, uh, we'll call him Jack. And Jack was, had a lot of problems going on at home, a lot of issues in his life. His parents had split up when he was younger. His dad lived 20 minutes away and he never saw him. Jack's life was broken. That didn't really have much to hope for, nothing really in his life that made him get out of bed and go, you life's good. Nothing. But he kept on coming to our drop-in sessions, kept on playing pool, kept on getting involved, kept on chatting with us. And over this time, I built up a good relationship with him. I got to know him. And slowly but slowly, we'd start to chat with him about who Jesus was. All the time, asking God, what's your will for this situation? How do we do this? How do we conduct these drop-in sessions so that your will can be done best? In that, we were seeking God. We're asking what he wants to do and we're seeking his will in the situation. And then we carry on knocking. We carry on going, Jack, what do you think about this? Or he'd ask a question about Jesus and we'd carry on talking about it. We'd engage in conversations about faith. We'd carry on and it took a while. Sometimes he wasn't interested, sometimes he was. It was a slow process but we kept on knocking, 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 trying to get that door to open, the door to openness to the gospel of Jesus. About six months after I met him, I was telling a story of a Ukrainian couple who, the war started, they had to leave the country. They'd been in this broken, rubbish, terrible van, and God had helped them get to the border through gunshots and all sorts of atrocities. They had made it out, and I was telling him how they trusted in God the whole time, and that they believed that it was Jesus who delivered them from this awful situation. And he said, "Toby, how did I become a Christian?" So we sat him down on the floor. We said, look, if you want to go outside, we can pray about this and we can make a Christian away from all your mates. And he said, no, I want to do it in front of my friends. (laughs) Bulls. Sat down, put my hand on his shoulder and at this point I was like, I didn't really know what to do because you pray for someone to come to faith and you sometimes don't really expect it to happen. And I was like, what what do I say? What do I pray? Um, So bashed out a little prayer and became a Christian on the spot, all because we have been asking God's will, we have been seeking him in the situation, and we have been knocking on the door. That was an example of when it's done right. He's got his struggles now. The discipleship's not been perfect, but that's youth ministry. He made a decision to follow Jesus. And so, just before we go on to Judas' talk, I'd love to give us a little chance just to discuss with a couple of people next to you. What's one time, one area in your life where you can start actively partnering with God, and which doors can you knock on? What's something you're praying into that you can start knocking about? We'll just chat for that for the next two minutes, then Judah's going to come up and give us a bit of a talk.